So if you'd like to to open, it's on your service sheet actually, uh, Mark 3, 7 to 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all that was going on, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with the diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up to a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them to the send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonagas, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. When Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven for all their sins and every slander, slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Nine ten. You can hear me? Hey, good morning. Can I um, add my welcome to Matt? It's great to see you. Um, if you're visiting or a guest here with us this morning, uh, extra great to have you guys here. We are continuing through uh, the book of Mark. Um, hope you're going all right with it so far. Um, like I said a couple of weeks ago, there was 16 weeks from the start of the year 
to Easter, and there's 16 chapters in Mark. So if you want to read along at home, there's a pretty easy pattern for it. Um, yeah, so can I encourage you to do that? And we're just going to be looking at little bits along the journey. Let me pray that God would help us to understand this this morning. Loving Father, we give you great thanks that we can come to this word, and Lord, that it, that it can challenge us and it can build us up. And Lord, in it, it reveals to us Jesus, who is our Saviour, who is uh, you come among us, and Lord, you leading us to everlasting life. So Father, we, we just ask that as we come to this part with the, with the easier to understand sections and the harder to understand sections, just that you would give us hearts that are receptive to your word, Lord, that are open to being corrected and changed. And Lord, just bless us by, by coming to your word today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, oh, I'm going to say last year, but it was actually the end of 2019. I went along to uh, a U2 concert and um, I took a couple of photos. Now, I've spoken about going to U2 concerts before and I love to go to U2 concerts. That's the best snap I got on the night. Um, there's another pic here, and then I've got a couple of professional pics that I've flogged off the internet of this. This is up in Suncorp Stadium in Brisbane. That's the whole crowd there. And, uh, yeah, there's a bit of a close-up of what was going on. Now, where I was stationed in the crowd was the third U2 concert that I'd been to. I don't know whether you like U2, but it doesn't really matter. Third concert that I'd been to, and it was the furthest back I'd ever been. I didn't get there early enough. I actually got lost on the way. I actually went there by myself like a complete Nigel, but anyway, it was nothing stopping me getting to the U2 concert there um, that night. And so because I was there by myself, I started to talk to the people that were around me, and there was these two guys there, um, and they, they were talking about stuff, and they just knew nothing. Uh, they weren't real U2 fans. Like, they were saying stuff that I just knew was wrong. And one guy had been to a concert before, and I was like, no, that didn't happen. And, you know, not in a, like, a arrogant way, but in a friendly way, I was like, oh, is that right, mate? Yeah, and then, oh, no, are you sure that happened? And, and the more that I talked to them, I could tell that they were there for an awesome concert. They were there because there was, you know, 70,000 people there. There was a crowd had been drawn along, but they weren't true believers, It'd be like if I went to a Justin Bieber concert. Because if I went there, I would be a big fish out of water. I wouldn't be a true... They, they don't call themselves believers. They call themselves believers, I think, is the, they make a play on his name. But that would be what the kind of situation. These guys I was talking to knew nothing about you two. They were just there for the hype. But that happens, doesn't it? People get caught up in the excitement of things. They get caught up in the gravity of things. A crowd can gather for all kinds of reasons. But at the end of the day, once they leave, if they're just part of the crowd, they kind of don't really care. It's like a few times that I've been to sporting games and it's been between two, two, two teams that I don't really care about, like the Gold Coast Titans versus the Brisbane Broncos. You know, the best thing that could happen for me watching that game is to just watch them smash each other. I don't really care who scores what try at the end of the day. They're two teams that I pretty well despise. But if it's a good close match, some exciting things happening, it's just a bit of mindless entertainment. Through, the, um, through what Matt's just read to us, if you're wondering why on earth I'm talking about this, 
through what Matt's just shared with us or re- read to us from Mark, you can actually see that this is kind of what takes place. Because in, in there, at the start of verse 7, it starts with this massive crowd. This crowd that's caught up in the hype, caught up in what's going on. And then, from verse 13 in that section, Jesus goes up the mountain and it's all about those who are the actual believers, the actual followers. And then finally, Jesus really speaks into this and talks about who is truly a follower of Jesus. And so, of course, there's far more at stake than if you really love a band or if you really support a team. Following Jesus is actually a much bigger prospect and a much bigger question. It's all about, like we've been talking about, humbly submitting to him as a sinner in need of his saving and his ruling in our life. Or alternatively, it's a question of, do I just remain in my sin and remain alienated from God? So my hope is, as we consider again this call in our lives to come and follow Jesus, that we would know clearly, we would know clearly what it means to have a close relationship with Jesus. Like Matt's already said, we're not just a crowd, but we're a family, a family with Jesus. Just like Jesus says in verse 35, whoever does, my, whoever does God's will, they are my brother and sister and mother. So, helpfully, these, uh, this, uh, this talk breaks down into real th- three really easy parts. First, they're at a lake, then they're up a mountain, and then finally they're in the house. And that's how we're going to treat each part. And the whole, the where we first meet Jesus here, we actually see that he's almost cornered by this lake. The lake has like become this barrier where the crowd has come in on him and he kind of can't get anywhere else. Now we have quickly become unaccustomed and possibly suspicious of crowds. That's what COVID's done to us, is that right? You kind of go, oh, there's a crowd there. Should I go anywhere near that? Should that be happening? And all this kind of stuff. But if you can remember them, that is crowds, picture yourself in Jesus' as a situation. Mark wants to impress on us that thousands of people are pressing in on him here. And you've got to think, is this call that Jesus put out to follow him suddenly become a raging success? Is this evidence Thousands are following Jesus at his call. Well, listen to verse 8. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. They've come from everywhere to get a piece of Jesus. Listen to verse 10. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Sounds like a big crowd, but this is not what Jesus has called people to do. Back in chapter 1, his call is to repent and believe. His call is to repentance and faith. Drawing a crowd, you know, it, it might allow for some kind of mass communication, but there's a real problem underlying this crowd. What they are there to get is not what Jesus is offering. What they're there to get is not what Jesus has on offer. They're wanting healings, and and Jesus has been doing healings, sure. But he knows at this point, at this point, for him to heal them would be a distraction. Jesus, in this point, demonstrates that to, to heal these people, 
would actually be a disservice to the people that are seeking it. Now, there's a lot to unpack in what I just said to you there. And this is where, as believers, we actually need a really robust understanding of God's purpose in suffering. I don't know whether you've read a good book on that or whether you've done a good Bible study on that or really thought about that before. But Jesus shows that, that we need a robust understanding of that because that's what he does. Thousands of people rock up to the man that can heal them and he jumps in a boat and heads away. Why does he do that? Now, Jesus isn't specifically teaching on that here. But you can see that he's not wanting to avoid healing because he somehow lacks compassion. Quite the opposite is actually true. Jesus is clear that he will heal. He's been doing it. And in the right context, he will do it. But listen to verse 9 and what he says. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. I think we see from Jesus here, what, what we see is, is part of how we ought to understand human suffering. Firstly, that he's powerful to deal with it. See, just a touch of Jesus, even, his, even what he's wearing, to get that close to him, can mean healing. But just like Jesus here, at times God has good reasons to withdraw. And we're right to assume that the crowds are here not seeking to respond to Jesus' call, but just to seek from Jesus what they can get from themselves. And can you see that that is sin? That's that's Adam and Eve. We don't want God. We just want what we can get from God. We don't want to obey him. We just want this fruit that looks good. That's the heart of sin. It's wanting what God has, but not wanting God himself. So let's be really clear. You can't come to Jesus for just what you can get out of him. Treating him like a genie or a lucky charm or something like that doesn't work. And so the question that we've all got to ask ourselves is, do we do that? Do you do that? And I think there's two questions, the two answers to that question that if we're honest with ourselves. Sometimes we can do that. We're, you know, I can be a buffhead and do that. And my prayer life can slip into that. Because I'm still sinful and because I can be impatient. Maybe you can relate to that. But if any of us are to honestly answer that we know that we do that because that's all that we understand Jesus to be, then we're not really following him. And I think that's most evidenced in people's lives that kind of dip in and out of Christian life, Christianity, because they're just not clear on, on what it is to follow him, what he's really offering now, this, these verses, verses 7 to 12, when you look at the way that Mark has written his, um, his account of Jesus' life, this is actually a joining section. This is Jesus going from the uh, era of earlier time in Galilee to the later time that he was working in Galilee. And I just want to step aside and explain something here. When you come to any of the Gospels, they're a summary and they are a work of theology. Yeah? A work of theology is to tell us something true about Jesus or God, the theology. But we've got to understand that the Bibles, or the, the Gospels, see, they tell the biography, they, they are biographical, and they tell truthful facts, 
uh, they present the facts, they're, they're truthful, but they're presented in such a way that we actually see that there's meaning in the way that they're presented. You on board with what I'm, what I'm trying to explain here? They're presented in a way that conveys meaning. And what's impacted Mark is the call to follow Jesus. And you can see that in the flow of this. What he's showing is that as he recounts what happened and explains what's happening around him, he's doing it in a sophisticated way. He's telling it geographically. Chapters 1 to 8 of Mark actually take you from the northern regions of Galilee and then the big turning point, which is theological because it's all about how he's going to the cross. He sets out for Jerusalem. There's a geography to it. You read John's Gospel, John's got Jesus bouncing north and south and north like this, all over the place. And they're both true. But Mark's presenting it in this way so that we'll notice it, so that we'll understand it, because he wants us to focus on why Jesus is going to the cross. Relevant, out of all of that, what's relevant to this reading today is that Mark often shows that crowds, Mark uses crowds in a metaphorical way that, that shows that a crowd is getting in the way of Jesus' true ministry. Now, there's a, minister, a pastor that I was listening to preach on some of this stuff, and, and, and he made these observations. His name's Tim Clemens. He's a good preacher. He said that the crowds that hung out with Jesus were often big and very enthusiastic. They would often praise God because they were surprised. They'd never seen anything like it. They were caught up in the excitement. But in Mark's gospel, the single most common attribute of the crowds is that they get in the way. They get in the way of people truly following Jesus. They're crowds, but they're not followers. And in the end, the crowd flips because the mob, the crowd, is yelling out, crucify him. They're yelling out, crucify him. Like we spoke about at the end of last year, we're on about community, not crowds. A crowd is not a community. A community has something in common, and that is that we're in common following Jesus. Jesus will say at the end of this passage that of the crowd that they're not his family. His own family isn't necessarily his family but the ones that will follow him are his family. So the question is with us. Are we followers of Jesus or are we just part of the crowd? Have a think about that as we hear what comes next with Jesus and the disciples. They're from the lake, they head up a mountain. But the crowds, they don't get the invite to that. Jesus takes them up there, but it's the people that Jesus calls that goes up there. Look at verse 13. Jesus went up to the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. From these followers, these, these people that he's um, pulled out of the crowd and, and invited up, he then goes on to appoint leaders among these followers. Now, specifically here, they're the apostles. Listen to verse 14. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that, they might, that he might send them out to preach. T just take this picture in. He's up a mountain. Those called by Jesus, those placed under the leadership of 12 apostles, 
if you know your Bible, Jesus is re-establishing in these guys this picture of God's people, of the nation of Israel. And he's redefining it. If you don't know the connections, let me just give you three points that might help you. Israel, as a nation, was basically established at Mount Sinai, at the mountain with Moses, the Ten Commandments, all of that stuff. And they were a collection of 12 tribes who lived under God's rule. And they were called, thirdly, from among the nations to be the nation through whom God worked. And so you see, what's Jesus doing here? He's up a mountain, there are 12 apostles, and they're going to be sent out to preach Jesus' call to the nations to repent and believe, the call to follow. Now, with the backdrop of the nation Israel right here, you've got to remember these crowds. They were looking not for that. They were looking for a wonder worker. They were looking for a military messiah. The teachers of the law that have been there, and they'll come up later, they're fixated on the letter of the law, but blind to their own sin and hypocrisy. Jesus shows that truly following him is about your heart. These guys that make up the 12 aren't chosen because of who they are. Back in chapter 1, we talked about the dirty fishermen. Last week, we talked about the dirty, rotten sinner, Levi the tax collector. Don't use that on your mother-in-law, hey, Bob. Graham Barker, at the end of last year, told us about Andrew, reminded he was just an ordinary guy, making connections, working things behind the scenes. These guys are chosen because they respond to Jesus' call on their life. And that's what qualifies them. Their call on Jesus' life. There's a a well-known and well-spoken about thing in Christian leadership that describes these guys. These guys are fat. That's an acronym, and it means this. They're faithful and available and teachable. Got that? They're fat. They're faithful, available, and teachable. See, Jesus will equip them. He will change them. But from their point of view, they're faithfully up that mountain with Jesus responding to his call. They're available. They have left behind what they were doing and they're putting Jesus first. And they're teachable. They're sitting with Jesus and letting him teach them. They're recognizing him as Lord. And they're coming under him. Now, you go on, and they bumble through this. Like, they're not, they, they, they don't get this perfect all the time. But in their heart, that's what they're, that's what they're demonstrating. Now, how do we get from them to us? Well, none of us are apostles. Okay, these guys were the apostles. They were the ones that were equipped and gifted to do things in that context for that purpose. But this is broadly what it looks like for all of us to follow Jesus, to respond to his call. So just ask yourself those questions. Are you faithful, available and teachable? Are you responding, are you going on Responding to Jesus' call to let him be Lord and Saviour in your life. Are you prioritising with your life, with your availability, living for Jesus? Is that a priority? If you did the whole map out my week and what do I do? 
If you map out your thought life and what do I think about? If you map, if, so, if you, you know, open to someone else doing that with you and having their input, would they say those things of you? Are you prioritising living life for Jesus? The growing and showing and going stuff. If you're a parent, are you raising your kids to have these priorities? Are you committed and consistent in serving, being intentional in community with other believers? Are you open to being taught the word of God? Are you open to God's spirit using God's word to shape you? Are you submissive to those who are charged with leading you? If you're in leadership, are you open to correction? Are you self-aware? Do you know the strengths and weaknesses, your own strengths and weaknesses, and are you humble about them? Now, they're pretty, pretty big questions, aren't they? And so I don't expect that you can do all that reflection just now as I raise them with you. How about I put them in the, this week's email so that you might take some time and ask those questions. And remember that you're safe to ask those questions. Like as a child of God, we are safe to do this kind of reflection because God wants us to be faithful, available and teachable. And, and we'll only be those things by his grace. Let's go there. Let's do that self-assessment that we might grow. Because Mark actually slipped something else in here. Did you notice this? Look at verse 19. The last guy that he lists is Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And Jesus doesn't say, this is Judas Iscariot, who will be my betrayer. This is Mark telling us this. This is Mark's commentary on what happened. Because he's actually slipping in a little bit of a warning here. See, Judas, he looked like someone who'd accepted the call. He looked like a follower. But he betrayed Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. He was lost in the end. He looked the part, but his heart was somewhere else entirely so ask yourself test your heart heed that warning and make sure that you're following jesus amen yeah now head down the mountain with jesus into this house you get back down there and the crowds are everywhere in verse 20 verse 21 jesus own family is hearing about what's going on and they got in mind that they've got to go and straighten him out. They kind of take that on for themselves. They think that's their role. Verse 22, the teachers of the law, they return and they have come across with their new accusation. This time, Jesus must be demon-possessed. Pretty full-on accusation. But at this stage, with all these people pressing back in on Jesus as he's in this house, there's just two groups. There's followers and there's non-believers. Those actively believing, those actively not believing. And once a person encounters Jesus, that's where they are. They're either rejecting him or following him. And he answers all those who want a piece of him, the crowds, his own family, the teachers of the law, with these few parables. Go there in verse 23 with me. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. By this, Jesus is pointing out that what they're saying is 
garbage. It's self-evident. For if, if he were working for Satan, why would he be driving away evil? He'd actually be embracing the crowd. He'd been drawing on their power. That's what Satan longs for. He longs to be worshipped as if he himself is God. Jesus is not just wanting to blindly accept the, the praise for how he impresses a crowd. He wants to call people to repentance and faith so that they might be loved and known by the Father God who created them. It's, it's, it's self-evident. He's not drawing on their power. They want to accuse Jesus of blasphemy, but it's them who are guilty of it. They are the ones claiming to be speaking for God, but in their heart they are hard toward him. And so Jesus turns his attention back to his family, who in, back in verse 21 decided they've got to go and sort Jesus out. Well, by verse 31, they've now arrived. And as they come and talk to Jesus, he just replies with this. This is in verse 33. Who are my brother? Who are, sorry, who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, on first reading, you've got to say, come on, Jesus, you can't talk to your mum like that. That's, that's my, my, you know, that's where I'm at with my kids. Don't talk to your mum like that. But think about it. They're trying to control him. They're not interested in following him. Can you see that? Listen to, Jesus says, whoever does God's will. Well, what is God's will? That we would repent and believe in the Saviour that he sent to us. They're just interested in controlling him. And they're wrong, and they've got it wrong. And, you know, I think you read on, and they work it out. His mother works it out. His brother, James, we know he's one of the um, guys leading the church. In the, in the, they work it out. But as this plays out, their response is wrong. Now, just a side point here, but it's relevant. Does this mean, does this first mean that if you're from a family of non-believers, that the call to be a Christian is to just ditch them and ignore them? The answer to that has to be no. Firstly, it doesn't make sense of the Old and New Testament's view of families, and it doesn't make sense of how significant households are in the way that God's kingdom is made up. But it does mean that families don't control and dictate faith or godliness, or commitment to follow. God's got no grandchildren is a nice, easy way to think about it. Everyone's faith is, is faith in their own heart. But it also means that how we relate to any non-believing family, or even to our own family, that we've got to keep in mind everything that the New Testament teaches us. So just a quick, this is my quickest summary I can give you. Families don't control and dictate faith or godliness or commitment to follow. But if you are parents, you've got authority to raise and care for your kids and you've got responsibility to bring them up to know and trust in Jesus. You've got to do that prayerfully because that's in God's hands ultimately. Further, if you're a dad, you have authority in your household to lead and a responsibility to sacrificially love and model the gospel in your house. 
if you're kids, you're called to submit to your parents and listen to them as they show you who Jesus is. But it is not in any of those cases, and this, you find all this in Ephesians 5, that that is absolute authority. It's only as far as you yourself are following Jesus. And the emphasis is always all on the responsibility. And it comes as each of us ourselves follow Jesus. So likewise, as a teenager or a young adult, you're actually transitioning out of that season of life. And the call on you is to follow Jesus for yourself. And that's my encouragement and my yearning to all of you guys in that age. And that means still honouring your parents, but learning for yourself what it is to follow Jesus and doing it. So where do we land with all this today? I'm going to put it really simply. If I'm following Jesus, I'm following Jesus. That's it. If we're following Jesus, we're following Jesus. We're not following a crowd. We're not part of people that think they know better, but Jesus is the one with authority. And he's the one that we'll listen to and whose call we will follow. So are you following Jesus? Just take a, a moment to pray before I pray out loud and just pray over that quietly in your own heart. Think over some of those questions and reflect on that for yourself. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you so much that when we come to your word, Lord, it's very clear on who Jesus was and the call that he put on our lives to follow him. Lord, we thank you for the grace and mercy shown by you, Lord, that he would come here to save us from our sin, offer us complete forgiveness, and Lord, humble us to put our lives in your hands. Lord, I pray that in our weakness, you might make us people who are faithful to that call on our lives. Lord, out of that growing relationship with you, Lord, make us people that are ever available to serve you and to serve your people and to serve the lost. As the mission, as the, as the words that you put on those you appointed to preach it still echoes through our world and you are saving people. And Father, I pray that you might humble all of us to be open to your correction, to your teaching, Lord, to your encouragement. Lord, that we might be faithful and available and teachable out of the solid relationship that we can be assured of in you because you have come to us as our loving saviour. 
Lord, we pray for your mercy on those of us that would be like the family of Jesus or the teachers of the law who think they know better and want to control things. Lord, we ask for your mercy. And Father, for the people that are like the crowd that dip in and out, Lord, we just ask that your spirit would reveal in their hearts who you truly are and what it truly is to follow you. Lord, that they might not be lost, but they might be found on that last day to be in you. And so, Lord, we pray this confidently and boldly because we know the trajectory of where Jesus goes from here. Lord, we pray it confidently because we know that you are our good and loving Father. We pray it in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen.